if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no rights to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her um, marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God, I just pray that you're with us this morning, that your spirit would be with our hearts as we go through this text that is just so foreign to us, Lord. God, I pray that we see your goodness, your character, your love, or the truth that is found within this text. Lord, I pray that you help us not be blinded or, or our thoughts be clouded because of our cultural context and, and the culture that we live in, Lord. God, I pray this morning that as we read these laws that you gave to the Israelites, Lord, as we try to understand what slavery was in the context of Israel, God, that we would see through this our relationship with you, Lord, that we would better understand who you are, who we are, and how we are to obey you, Lord. So God, I pray that you're with us this morning. Be with my words, Lord. I pray that, that nothing I, I speak this morning comes from my own ideas or hearts or thoughts, Lord, but, but only from your word. Be with us in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> Maybe seated. Today, as you can tell, we're in Exodus 21, which really is diving deeply into the law portion of Exodus. And I'm not going, going to lie, preaching through the law is very intimidating as a preacher. Uh, I knew this was coming, and I knew it was coming as I picked the book of Exodus to preach through. As I've studied and I've read different preachers that have handled the book of Exodus, I, I've noticed that a lot have stopped at Exodus chapter 20 and haven't preached the second half of the book of Exodus, partly because of the law in the second part of the book of Exodus. I, I know that there are many that just have avoided preaching through the book of Exodus altogether because of the second half of the book, in, uh, book of Exodus and, and the law portion of Exodus. And in fact, I had a, a mentor of mine, a, a pastor friend that have come up and listened to me preach recently and found out that we we're going through the book of Exodus, and we were in Exodus 20 at that time, and he asked me how I was going to preach through the law, and I responded, I have no idea. But this is God's word, and I have trusted as I gone through the book of Exodus when we got to this point that, that it would be powerful, it would be a blessing to walk through the law together. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I trust that this is true. I trust that, that this truly is the word of God. Therefore, I trust we'll be blessed this morning as we seek to understand and even apply God's word in the text that we're covering. I truly believe God's word is powerful, and I truly believe all of it is powerful. So 
with that said, let's just dive into the, the text and, and this portion of scripture. It's called Exodus 21 through 23, which is the law. It's often been called by theologians the book of the covenant. It contains a, a wide-ranging set of laws with specific details on how Israel was to live as God's covenantal people. Now, before I jump into our passage in particular this morning, I want to give a couple thoughts and principles that really should help us understand this portion of Scripture, help us understand the law, especially here in Exodus. I have, I have five thoughts and principles. The first thought is this, and let me just kind of walk through this, and again, this will help us tackle the text this morning. The first thought is this. At this point in Israel's history, there was no centralized government. Now, it's extremely important to, to remember as we walk through this. I've talked about this before. There was no king at this point. There was no justice department, no police department. There was no welfare system or safety net for the poor. Instead, Israel had elders who were to govern God's people with the law. Now, as I have said, there's probably well over a million people within the nation of Israel. That means a million sinners together without a police department. One of the miracles of the Exodus was really that Israel didn't kill itself. It didn't fall into anarchy or chaos. Now, there's a number of reasons of this, and I've said before, like the ground opening up and swallowing a rebellion. But one of the main reasons, one of the, the, the miracles was really just the law itself. The law was given to, to the elders of Israel to show them how they were to apply the Ten Commandments in everyday situations. So the first thought is that there was no centralized government. That's extremely important as we walk through our text this morning. The second thought or principle I want you to, to keep in mind as we walk through the text is that the, the law wasn't meant to address every situation. Uh, it may seem that way as we walk through the law because there's so many different laws within the, the Pentateuch and, and they, they hit specific things, but it wasn't meant to address every situation. Theologians have separated the law into three parts. The moral law, which are summarized in the Ten Commandments, the, the civil law, and the ceremonial laws. Now, I believe this is somewhat of an oversimplification, but I also think that it's helpful to kind of think of the laws separated into those three different categories. The civil law is what we're kind of dealing with today. The civil law deals with how Israel was to govern itself. But it wasn't meant to address every single situation. Instead, the civil law was a series of examples, or maybe better yet, case studies, of how wise elders were to settle disputes by using the Ten Commandments. Therefore, the law in chapter 21 doesn't cover everything. It gives examples of how to apply the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel in, in civil disputes. The third principle that I think we need to keep in mind is very important, it's this. Just because something in the law is not condemned, but instead regulated, does not mean that God condones it or even encourages it. We actually learned this principle from Jesus himself in Matthew 19, where Jesus makes clear that God set regulations in the Old Testament uh, around divorce. Not because he condones it or he encourages it or is happy about divorce, 
But instead, because of the hardness of the Israelites' hearts, that's what Jesus says. That's why he sets up these regulations around divorce. And in other words, because of sin, because of the frequency of divorce within the nation of Israel, he sets up laws to regulate it. This brings me to a fourth thought. Again, these are important thoughts as we approach the text. Unlike the Ten Commandments, the civil laws do not transcend both covenants. Nine out of the Ten Commandments are reinstated in the the New Testament, showing us that these laws transcend both covenants. But the New Testament is, is clear. We're no longer under all the Old Testament laws. The civil laws and the ceremonial laws were no longer uh, under these sets of laws. Meaning, the laws found in Exodus chapter 21 through 23 are the application of the Ten Commandments to a specific situation. And that is Israel and the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. Therefore, as New Testament, New Covenant believers, we are no longer obligated to obey all these laws. But this leads to a fifth and final thought, and this is extremely important. Even though the civil law doesn't apply to us today, we can learn principles that are relevant to our lives. Remember, I've said this a number of times already this morning, the civil law is the application of the Ten Commandments to a particular situation, Israel and the Mosaic Covenant. Therefore, even though the laws themselves don't apply directly to us, right, we're not Israel, we're in the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant, the general principles behind these laws can teach us how to apply God's moral standards to our situation. And so we can learn a lot from the law. Again, I think we'll be blessed by walking through it. We can learn a lot. We can learn about God's character, which we'll see even this morning. We can learn about the context of the New Testament. The context of the New Testament is really the Old Testament. And all the arguments that Jesus had with the Pharisees are concerning the law. And for most people that live nowadays that are a part of the church, we're just unfamiliar with the law because we avoid it, because it's complicated. And we can learn principles from the law, general principles from the law that are relevant for us today. Principles that teach us how to apply God's moral law. In our lives. So there are things that we're going to, to be learning today, things we're going to be looking for today in the text. And, and with these thoughts in mind, let's just kind of walk through our text this morning, verse by verse. If you would, look at verse 1 again. Exodus 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Again, here's the context. This law is being given to Israel by Yahweh through Moses. Yahweh's talking to Moses. Moses will write this down and read this law to the Israelites, teaching Israel how to apply the Ten Commandments that God just spoke from Mount Sinai. Now look at verse 2. This is where God starts. Verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave. Let me start stop here because the, the very first thing that's in the book of the covenant may be surprising to you, but deals with slavery. Now, this was unparalleled in antiquity. In most ancient civilizations, laws concerning slaves were few, if any, and definitely not in a prominent position within the laws that were written down. 
But for Israel, the very first laws given in the book of the covenant deal with slavery. Undoubtedly, this was because of slavery in the book of Exodus as, as a whole, right? Slavery is a major theme in the book of Exodus. But more than that, I believe slavery comes first in the law here, the book of the covenant, the civil law, because God is concerned with the most vulnerable within society. I mean, just think about it. He doesn't start with laws on how to obey the powerful. He starts with how to protect the vulnerable. He teaches us, right, something about his character in this, that he starts with the vulnerable and how to protect. And I'm sure many of you are asking, and I'm sure many of you are asking this as I was reading the portion of scripture that we're covering this morning, why did God allow slavery at all? Why did God allow slavery at all? A very important question, and I'm sure, again, many of you have asked this even before the sermon this morning, knowing your Bible is pretty well, reading through this portion of Scripture, wondering why is this even in here. I know there are many non-believers that like to use this to, to justify why they don't believe in Scripture as a whole, because there's slavery in Scripture. Well, let's remember two thoughts before we tackle this question. Why does God allow slavery at all? The first thought, remember, just because something is not condemned as wrong, but instead regulated, does not mean God condones it or encourages it. That's the first thought. But second, and I think this one is more important than even the first thought, is this. There was no centralized government at this point. Meaning, no king, no police, and no matter what your thoughts are on the welfare system in our culture, there was no safety net for the poor. So let me ask a question, and just think about this, honestly. What was an Israelite going to do if he mismanaged his wealth to the point of finding himself in extreme poverty or in extreme indebtedness? Well, one thing he could do was sell himself into slavery. What verse 2 is talking about in this portion of Scripture is someone buying a slave— and listen to this. This is extremely important. To help. I'm going to back that up. To help that person get out of debt. To help that person escape extreme poverty. Now that sounds strange again to us. But slavery was a way to protect the poor. It was a way to protect the poor in, in, in the Old Testament. It was a way to protect the most vulnerable within the, the nation of Israel. So let me show you what I mean. Again, verse 2, listen to what it says. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. In other words, after six years he shall go out free, and he shall go out free owing the master Nothing. In other words, all his debts are clear after six years. And on top of that, he was not allowed to go back into extreme poverty. If you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12, and I want you to turn there. We're going to be right back in Exodus 21, so put a bookmarker right there. But I want you to see this in Scripture. Deuteronomy 15, 12.
Verse 12 says this. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. Again, with, with no indebtedness, you let him go only six years of slavery. Verse 13. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. Verse 14. You shall furnish him liberally. Now, the word liberally is not in the Hebrew, uh, but it's still a good translation because the word furnish uses the uh, infinite absolute for emphasis. In other words, words it's, it's not just furnish him. Right? When you let, let this man go free, you are to furnish him liberally, graciously, abundantly. Verse 14, you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of the, your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. After six years, you are not just to let him go. After six years, you are to help him get back on his feet. You shall furnish him liberally. Let me just point something else out in this text, and this is something that I just kind of was meditating on this week as we approach the difficult topic of slavery in Scripture. Deuteronomy 15, verse 12, look what it says. If your brother, kinsman, relative in Hebrew, if your brother. The Hebrew slave was never to be considered anything less than a brother. A brother made in the image of God. A brother that's in need of help. And after six years, this brother is to, to be let go in a way that would help him get back on his feet. Let me just read to you from one commentator talking about this text in Deuteronomy. He says, this text proves that the, the biblical form of slavery had a constructive purpose. It was for the benefit of the servant as well as the master. This is not the way slavery usually works. Ordinarily, it's for the master's advantage. He gets his work done at the sl slave's expense. But, but the purpose of slavery in Israel was to train men and women to become productive members of society. The reason they had to become servants in the first place was because they were in debt, sometimes through their own negligence, and sometimes to make restitution for a theft. In such cases, their servanthood, servitude was made necessary by their sin. But rather than being condemned to a life of uh, perpetual poverty, they had a chance to improve their situation. Slavery was God's way of training irresponsible men to manage their own affairs. Listen, I just want to be as clear as I can be on this. This is nothing like early American slavery at all. It's not even close. In fact, it shouldn't even be put in the same category. In fact, there's all types of arguments in, in, in translation committees if we should even use that word slave here at all. Because it's so different than our cultural context understanding of slavery. But because of our influence in American slavery, because of how we see that word slavery, we have a hard time understanding passages like this one. We see that word slavery and automatically think evil. 
And, and not just like evil, but the worst type of evil. <laughs> let me say this, because we need to soften our view here on the passage that we're, we're walking through this morning. And, and I'm going to try to prove this. Let me just up front try to soften it. What's described in Exodus 21, 1 through 11 as slavery, which I think is an appropriate word, and I'm going to use that word, is more like someone enlisting in the army than it is early American slavery. In fact, if you had, as an extreme, early American slavery over here, and you had enlisting in the army over here, Hebrew slavery would be right here. Not even close to this side. We all say slavery is evil, and, and rightfully so if we're thinking early American slavery. Very few would say enlisting in the army is evil. But think about it for a second. In some ways, the government owns you when you enlist. Not in every way, but in some ways. I'm seeing some people that have been enlisted shaking their head yes right now. They tell you where you will live, what you will do, how much money you will make, in some circumstances, how much weight you will weigh, what you will eat because of that weight. <laughs> in fact, when you're in the armed forces, the government may force you to put your own life in extreme danger. So let me just point out some similarities. Again, I want to soften our view of what is being talked about here, of Old Testament slavery and listening in the military, because I think there's a correlation here. See if you will agree with me. First, both are voluntary. They're both voluntary. In fact, it was considered a capital offense to, to force someone into slavery in the Old Testament. A capital offense. Right, turn back to Exodus 21, verse 16. As you're turning there, this verse I'm reading, about to read, there's many other passages that, that share this, especially one in Deuteronomy that even makes it more clear. But, but look at verse 16, Exodus 21, verse 16. says this in verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, anyway, it, meaning if someone steals a man and forces him into slavery, or, or is caught in the act of stealing a man to force him into slavery, shall be put to death. Death penalty. Period. In fact, if this one law was, was obeyed in early American slavery, we wouldn't have early American slavery. In other words, anyone caught Forcing someone into slavery, death penalty. It was completely voluntary. In fact, I said this first service, the, the military is even more forceful on this because they can enlist in the draft, which is not voluntary. Second similarity, just like the military, Old Testament slavery had term limits. Look at verse 2, Exodus 21, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. In other words, you couldn't own a slave past six years unless, just like the military, that slave wanted to stay. It was his choice. Third, you are promised to be taken care of 
during your service and even after. The slave, just like the military, was given food, clothing, a place to live. And after six years, slavery is over with, and the owner is commanded, we just read in Deuteronomy, is commanded to give that servant wealth. Wealth so that servant can, can become a productive citizen again, get back on his feet. Similar to the military, right, who often pays for school so that person can become a productive citizen within society. This is why God allowed slavery. It helped the most vulnerable in Israel, the poor, the impoverished, the destitute. It helped them get back on their feet and become productive members of society. In a lot of ways, a lot of people use the military for the same thing. A lot of people escape poverty through the military. Now, of course, without a doubt, because man is sinful, there was a real danger of abuse in the system. Therefore, there needed to be strict regulations and strict laws surrounding the practice of slavery, and that's what we have in chapter 21, 1 through 11, protecting the most vulnerable within society. So let's walk through this passage. Verse 2, again, it says this, when you buy a Hebrew slave because of poverty or debt, right, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free for nothing, owing nothing. In fact, he's to be given furnishing liberally. Verse 3, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then the wife shall go out with him. Again, just like the military, if someone is married, his wife and children are to be cared for and with him in, in the servant suit. Verse 4, if his master gives him a wife, in other words, while this man is a slave, and his master gives him a wife, either another slave, right, owned by this master, or possibly even one of his daughters. Right, verse 4, if the, his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Again, this is after the six years. Now, because of our culture, because of our cultural content or context, and our absolute, and let me just say this, rightful hatred of early American slavery, when we interpret passages like this, or when we read passages like this, we read it with the most negative lens possible. We read verse 4 and just assume, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I, I'm sure most of us, 90% of us, just assume that God is commanding a master to tear apart a family here. The husbands are to go, but the wife and children are still the masters. So let me just ask the question and see if I can change the lens that we're looking at this from. Does that sound like God? The one who created marriage, the one who hates divorce, the one who just commanded from the mountain, from his own voice, faithfulness within marriage? Sixth commandment? Does that sound like God to command someone to tear apart a family? Well, let's look through this passage through that lens. No. Just because verse 4 says, and he shall go out alone, does not mean the marriage is over. 
just means that man can go free. That man can go free. He has served his duty. He's paid off his debt. It's been six years. He owes the master nothing at this point. But the wife and children are going to stay under the care of the master until the husband is able to buy them out of slavery to redeem them. In other words, he would have to prove himself first. Now, just as a side note, to kind of get our mind wrapped around this, because I've been thinking about this, it just somewhat reminds me of a father not giving his daughter's hand in marriage until, until that boy can prove himself by holding down a job. Just think about why God would command something like this. If this husband got himself in slavery in the first place, it meant he, he mismanaged his money to the point that he had to sell himself into slavery to get out of the, the trouble he got himself into. Therefore, when he is set free, he had to prove himself and stay out of that poverty until the wife and children would stay under the care of the master. I believe this protected two things, both. Both the master's investment, right, his wealth, because there is wealth there, for sure, owning this wife, if it was his slave, or even if it was his daughter, there's still wealth there. And also, it protected the wife and ch child. On top of that, this is so important, this is something we miss in our culture. It gave the husband an opportunity to restore his honor and dignity to prove that he can manage his household well. Which leads to a question, well, what if this guy just can't get his act together? Because there are people in society that just, just, that just struggle, right? Are they just to stay separate forever? Or what, what are we supposed to do? Well, verse 5 covers that. There's another option. Verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. In other words, I love and trust my master. I just want to stay under his care in his household with my wife and children. Verse 6. And this master shall bring him to God. This would probably mean bring him to the temple. And since he plainly said, I love my master, it was to witness that this guy is truly saying this, this, this servant. He's not being forced into this somehow. And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. This is probably after the temple. And his master shall bore in his ear through with an awl. And he shall be his slave forever. Meaning, this man, his wife, and his children will stay under the care of this master forever. He'll be expected to work. He's a slave. He's part of this, this household. But he's also part of the household. Almost like a son. And if you think I'm being over-exaggerated here in this, just think of the servant of Abraham. How Abraham treated her and her son. He was about to give all of his wealth to that servant. In fact, it broke his heart when they were driven away from him. Again, 
we see slavery in the most negative light possible. But look what verse 5 says. But if the slave, right, this is the slave's choice, in other words, if he plainly says by his own free will at this point, I love my master. The assumption under this, I really believe, is that the masters were to treat slaves extremely well with dignity as a brother, to help them. The assumption, in other words, in in Exodus 20, if there was no cultural baggage mixed to this, I believe would be positive reading through this, not negative. Redemptive, constructive. In fact, in a lot of ways, way more ethical than even our own prison system. Again, it's like a man in the military saying, I love the military. There's many that say that. I love the structure. I just love being a part of the military. Or the military is just a good way of taking care of my family. I'm going to make a career out of it. The assumption of slavery in Exodus 21 is positive, not negative. And it keeps going. Look at verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave... She shall not go out as the male slaves do. Now again, we read verse 7 and we just go, that sounds horrible. Why would a father ever sell his daughter into slavery? Well, once again, it's probably because of poverty. This verse most likely is describing an arranged marriage, as we'll see very clearly as we keep going. When a poor man is so poor... He doesn't know how he's going to take care of his daughter. One of the things he could do was sell his daughter to a rich man in hopes that she would become a permanent member of this household, either by marrying the master or marrying the master's son. It was a way for that daughter to escape poverty in a culture that there was only arranged marriages, by the way. Look at verse 8. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then she shall let her, or then he shall let her be redeemed. In other words, before they get married, if he changes his mind, this master, then he shall let the father buy this daughter back, probably with the same exact money that was given or wealth that was given to him for the daughter. He, right, this is the master, shall have no rights to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. Now, I want you to know something about this passage, because again, we see this just so negatively. Who does God blame for this situation? Who's at fault? Who's, who's in sin? Not the father, not the girl, the master. He has broken faith with her. He made a promise to marry her, to take care of her. He has broken faith with her. He has sinned. So God is setting up rules to make sure that 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 girl is protected. Now look at verse 9. If he designates her, the servant, the slave, for his son, he shall deal with her as as with a daughter. And treat her as a daughter. Verse 10 goes back to the master. If he takes another wife to himself, meaning the master takes his servant, marries her, but then sinfully 
marry someone else afterwards. Listen, po- polygamy was common in antiquity, but, but it doesn't mean that it was right. Remember the principle, just because God regulates sin doesn't mean he endorses it. If he takes another wife to himself, again, sinfully, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. Probably sexual rights there, most likely, so she would have an heir. In other words, the master marries the slave girl and then marries someone else. He is to to treat the first wife well, not diminishing her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. Verse 11, and if he does not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. In other words, she should be set free without payment from the father because this man has been unfaithful, neglecting, and even abusive. I hope you see that although the customs that are talked about here in this passage, like arranged marriage, are just so foreign to us and and we struggle with these customs, although being a father, I don't know if I'm all that against arranged marriages, to be honest. I hope you see that slavery in Exodus 21, 2 through 11 is not exactly what you think of it through our cultural lens as we read it. Slavery was a means to protect the most vulnerable within the society of Israel. A way that, that helped men escape poverty and, and even young women marry out of poverty. Again, I just want you to get this picture. On the spectrum, right, of enlisting in armed forces and early American slavery, what's being described here in Exodus 21 is way over here. This leads me to a final point this morning. As New Testament believers, I think there's a lot we can learn from this passage. We can learn about God's character. He cares and is concerned for the vulnerable, the marginalized, the oppressed, those in need. We see God's heart in this passage. We can learn that God expects his people to have that same concern. God's people should have a heart for the vulnerable, the poor, the oppressed, to use their wealth and influence to help those in need. It's a clear principle that we see throughout this passage. I also think, and this is something our culture can learn, We can learn that there is honor and dignity in striving to pay off one's debts. If someone has made a mistake in life, there's honor and dignity in in trying to make restitution. And don't get me wrong, having your debts forgiven, I mean, that's what what it is to be a Christian, right? But we also have to see that, that, that there's honor and dignity in trying to make wrongs right within our life. I think there, there is a redemptive aspect in our passage this morning. People after the end of the six years were, were almost redeemed back into society. But more than this, there's one major lesson I just want to end on 
today. One thing that I think we can, we can take home and apply to our lives, because you ask, well, how do we apply these laws to our lives, especially laws on slavery? Like, what's this have to do with the New Testament Christian and believer? Look at verse 5 one more time. I just love how this verse is phrased and, and worded. And I don't think it's by accident. It says this, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Instead, I'll stay here as a slave. I'm going to stay a slave because I love this master so much. In essence, what the slave is saying, I just want you to hear this. I, I, I love this guy so much that I'm willing to sacrifice everything for him. Even my personal freedoms. I love my master more than freedom. That's what this slave is saying. If this is the case, verse 6, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore in his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. In other words, he shall pierce the slave's ear. It would be a sign that this, this person is a slave and is owned by this master. He shall be his slave forever. Which leads to a question because it's interesting. I, I don't know many passages that talked about pierced ears in, in the Old Testament and, and the symbol, uh, some symbol, or s- this symbol behind it. Why pierce the ear? Well, it showed that the slave's ears are attentive to the voice of the master. That whatever the master says he'll do without question, he belongs to him. Again, he loves his master so much he is willing to sacrifice his own freedom. If you had turned to Psalm 40, verse 4. This is a psalm of David, not a perfect man as we know, but a man after God's own heart. Verse 4 says this, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them that they are more than can be told. Verse 6. In sacrifice... In offering, you have no delight, or you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Now, th- this is a really weird phrase in Hebrew. It literally means something in Hebrew. My ears, you have dug. You, you probably have a footnote. You probably have footnotes to say all types of things, and, and, but I want to focus on this. You probably have a footnote that says something like that. My, my ears, you have dug, like dug a hole. You have dug a hole in my ears. It's a weird phrase, but that word dug can also be translated pierce. Meaning this could be translated, my ears you have pierce. Now, this is debated. And so I don't want to 
take too strong of a stance on this, but, but there is a chance that David could be referring back to Exodus 21 and the custom that would have been going on for years now in Israel, the piercing of a slave's ear by his master, symbolizing that this slave will listen to the master's voice, will be attentive to, to the master's words, and he will do whatever the master will is, not his personal will, but the master's will, out of love. Right, that's Exodus 21. But look at verse 8. I delight. Another word for love. And love, I delight to do your will. Oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Your words, your orders, your commands, your law is within my heart. For David, pleasing God was more than just simply offering a sacrifice to him for his sins. And, and that was part of it, and that was extremely important. Obviously, we talked about that last week, but it was more than that. For David, pleasing God meant loving God and trusting God so much that his ears were attentive to God's voice, to God's word. For David, he loved his master more than he loved his own personal freedom. God was truly Lord and master over his life. And he obeyed out of love. He obeyed out of love. Verse 8, I delight to do your will. So here's our application, and then we'll close here this morning. Do you love God that much? Do you love him so much that you would give him your whole life? that your ears are attentive to his word? That you will obey out of love for him? Do you love God more? This is honestly, every time we do counseling, every time I examine my own heart, this is the question I ask. Do I love God more than my personal freedom? Ask the question. Let's pray. Dear God, our Lord, our Master, God, we see throughout both the Old and New Testament that, that idea of slavery inform us in our relationship with you. That Israel was a slave to Egypt, was a slave to Pharaoh himself, a harsh slave. And they were redeemed and freed and bought into slavery of Yahweh, the good, gracious, loving God, in the New Testament, we see that word doulos used over and over and over again. The, the apostles describing themselves as servants, of, as slaves to Jesus. In fact, 
in James, it's the first thing he says, that he is a doulos, he's a, he's a slave. Before he even says that he's his brother, he's a servant. That for James, it was more of a joy to obey you than it was to do what, what he wanted to do. God, I pray that that's our attitude. That we wouldn't just know your word. That we wouldn't just hear your word, Lord, but that, that we would do it out of our love for you. That we would know what's right and that we would follow it because we know you're good. God, let us have that heart. A heart after you. In your son's name.